Who are we? You sure you want to know? We're your friendly neighborhood podcast hosts, Peter and Sean. Welcome to So Much to Tell, a Raimi Spider-Man podcast. This episode is all about one particular way of looking at Spider-Man 3, a particular angle or lens to view it by. And that angle is of the past returning to haunt an older and wiser Peter Parker. Spider-Man 3 begins with Peter in a much better place and in much better spirits than usual, having finally taken control of his life. Everything is going well for Peter, but it's only a short matter of time before life digs up the past and very nearly buries Peter with it. The Raimi trilogy comes full circle as Peter again faces some of the trials and inner demons he seemed to have triumphed over in the original film. Peter is again on something of a power high, as he was in Spider-Man 1 following his fight with Flash and his fight with Bonesaw McGraw. And, as in Spider-Man 1, shortly after, his world will be rocked with the revelation that his uncle's killer is on the loose. At the same time, a goblin is yet again unleashed, seeking to wreak havoc on Peter's life. And, alternately, Harry is also temporarily freed from his recent struggles and returned to the mental state of his good-natured self as it was shortly after graduation, with little of the baggage of Spider-Man and drama with Peter and MJ and his father. Second chances abound in this movie if the characters are prepared to take them. Now, Peter has come a long way from being the boy who was bit by a spider. Now everything seems to go right for him, and one would think... This would make things easier for Pete, as he is forced to revisit and confront the pains of the past once more. But as we see, that is not the case. Hmm. I'm just fascinated by this sort of, this this way of looking at the movie. Yeah. As, uh, you know, these demons, these skeletons in Peter's closet <laughs> coming back to life once more. Are they the skeletons that we saw on the balcony at the World Unity Day Festival? I think those are some of them. Yeah, those are a couple of the skeletons that are in there. (laughs) But, you know, it's like, it just fascinates me about this movie, how it revisits certain moments from Spider-Man 1, that back in Spider-Man 1, we we really didn't get as much of a time to explore. You know, it it revisits these elements of Peter's personality, where he has has these sort of, like, brief lapses in his heroic journey. Hmm. You know, brief lapses of that responsibility of using his powers. You know, Peter normally manages to keep these things in check, or, you know, perhaps even more insidiously than that, like, he doesn't realize they're there, but they they take front and center in this movie. Like we said, one of those just being that, that power high that we see him in briefly in Spider-Man 1. Now, what would you say is the power high that he has, uh, and when would you say he has it most prominently in that movie? I think we see that creep up in him twice. I think it's the first time is once he's realizing, wow, you know, I can I can take on my bully. I can take on Flash. You know, just that look on his face where he's like, I can do anything, you know, which is only then tempered by seeing MJ's sort of look of, you know, shock and disgust at what she sees. And then I think that resurfaces again after he's again on top of the world, you know, the, you know, his arms raised up in the air after he meets Bonesaw McGraw. Everyone's cheering for him. He's thrilled. He's ready to get that money. He doesn't get it. And then he's like, well, fine, forget this guy. Don't need him. So I think those are like two instances where you see Peter's 
you know, maybe natural, maybe any of our natural tendency to sort of want to use that power for our own benefit and just sort of like enjoying it, you know, just loving the power for the sake of the power, not seeing it as something that, you know, because we have this that nobody else has, it's sort of our duty to share it with the people who need it. I've thought a number of times watching these movies that we're very fortunate that a lot of these people do seem to use it for good. And because I think very easily, um, if these powers are devolved under the wrong person, they can be used for evil, which I guess is something else these movies explore. They explore kind of these conflicting sides of having these um, enhanced abilities, how sometimes it's very easy to want to um, use them for just, you know, purely uh, selfish purposes. Yeah. Certainly. Yes, I think he felt good after uh, winning the fight against Bonesaw and then allowing the robber to get away to sort of teach that fight promoter a lesson. Mm -hmm. So, yes, he was feeling a little bit, you know, high on himself at that point in the first film and, you know, very humbling experience of losing his uncle. And, you know, that sort of puts him on the right path. But then by the third film, like you said, he's kind of getting into that territory again. I think you hit on it when you said that humbling experience. I think Peter has had nothing but humbling experiences from Spider-Man 1 to Spider-Man 3. You know, like you say, he lost his uncle and he realizes, wait a minute, if I don't do good, that can end up hurting hurting people, you know, mm -hmm. and it can maybe help everyone if I do good. So he learns a lesson there about what having a self-serving nature can do to you and do to those you love. Then all throughout Spider-Man 2, it's all about him not getting what he personally wants. You know, he's constantly forced to sort of reevaluate what he's doing. Is this worth it? I can't have what I want. What am I supposed to do? That was one of the central questions of Spider-Man 2. However, once we get to Spider-Man 3, things are going very well for him, and perhaps too well. You know, he's getting to that point where maybe he doesn't stop and evaluate himself and his choices and why he does what he does very much. He sort of started to like rest on his laurels. Those challenges and those sufferings that he faced before that kept him constantly reevaluating his mission, sort of tempering him and refining him, those things start simmering away and he finds himself able to like start enjoying the powers again. And it's hard to begrudge Peter that. You you see exactly. him there and people exactly. are happy for him for once. And I think that's part of just the insidious tragedy of all this, because like there's doesn't seem to be anything inherently wrong with enjoying yourself and being happy. But I I think the problem is like not being self-aware though. Yeah. You know, it, it you lose yourself a little bit into that. And I think Peter starts losing track of why he does what he does in a lot of ways. Yeah. On the surface, you know, mentally he always wants to help people, but I think there's some degree of you know, you can see it when he's being a little flashy and a little showy at the uh, at the festival uh, for giving Peter the key to the city. You know, he kind of wants to show off to the kids like, hey, check it out. It's going to start again in a couple minutes, <laughs> you know. Well, I'm, I'm thinking, too, of like um, the scene when he's with Mary Jane where he had initially planned to propose to her. Yeah. And, um, you know, he's talking to her about like how they're chanting his name. Mm -hmm. And he says the phrase, I, I guess I've become something of an icon. Yes. You know, it's just he he's so he's very aware of the good press and there's no question he's letting it get to his head a little bit. And again, I, I totally agree. He's starting I to believe his own PR. Yeah, it would be hard not to after being badgered for so long and being put down by the press and the Daily Bugle for so long and just having people 
hate you and criticize you. It, I mean, it must feel good to get that sense of, yeah, that sense of recognition, that validation of being put on a pedestal there and, you know, having festivals in your honor. I mean, being almost, almost like a god among men. And you know what? I think that makes for, that's what makes for good drama. Because if Peter was like very obviously completely at fault for something, like if he was like going out of his way to do something wrong, it would be like, of course, Peter, you're doing something wrong. Yeah. That's not interesting. But I think it's very easy to empathize with Peter after all he's gone through for years and suddenly things start going right for him. I think it's easy to relate with that. Like, yeah, of course the guy just you know wants to enjoy having a break. Of course yeah. he wants to you know live it up a little bit. And I think that's part of the tragedy of it. This feeling of grandiosity, you know, that I'm I'm somehow above it all sort of ends up creeping up on him. And I think you nailed it right there, Sean, when you mentioned, you know, sort of being a god. You know, this very weirdly sort of takes us back to Norman Osborne territory here. The very same thing that he and Norman once spoke about, that the people exist just to, mm -hmm. you know, put the exceptional few up onto their shoulders. He's sort of letting that happen. He's <laughs> He feels like he's sort of above it all. Like you said, he's something of an icon, mm -hmm. you know, and he's he's indulging that. And that's a dangerous place to be, especially with someone with such great power. And I have to imagine that um, him indulging in all of this just really, it, it just, it, it's so much worse for Mary Jane, who as a struggling actress is trying to get just that sort of reaction, you know, people loving her and accepting her work and cheering her for what she does. And she's not getting any of that in Spider-Man 3. So it just has to really, you know, stick in her craw that, Despite, you know, that Peter Parker is getting all of that recognition that she so desperately craves, and he's, you know, not being really humble, or he's not being particularly gracious about it. He's kind of letting it go to his head, and really, it's one of the things that drives a wedge in their relationship in that movie. Yeah, I think you're right. You know, along with this great power that he's enjoying right now, he's sort of losing sight of the ability to empathize with people. You know, he Peter is such an empathetic soul in the first couple films. And by this third one, he's he's sort of being blocked by his own way of thinking when he's trying to relate to her. I mean, certainly he's trying to help her, but like even when she says like, you know, try to understand how I feel. He kind of gets like this sort of odd smile on his face like, "Okay, you know, let's do it." You know, like I'm I'm trying. And like these things cut so much more deeply for MJ. Yeah. It's just it just happens to be not necessarily through anyone's fault of their own, but just through the different circumstances they're at in their life, what MJ's going through and what Peter's going through, that they both just happen at the exact wrong time and it is just the wrong time for everything and yeah. it just starts breaking down this relationship. It's Kind of, you know, I don't want to say an unfortunate coincidence that her feeling of her worth as a um, performing professional yeah. is going to kind of reach its nadir. Yeah. And when she tells him at the end of the movie, I'm lonely, you aren't there for me, she's putting on the performance that Harry wants her to. But I think it's also not to be missed that what she's saying to Peter is true. <laughs> you know, oh, I don't sure, know if these sure. are the things that Harry told her to say or if this is what she's coming up with herself, but for whatever reason, mm. you know, like that's accurate. She's finally sort of coming out and saying these things that are true. And that's just sort of all a result of where Peter is. 
Now, some of it, you know, I'm in love with someone else, obviously, like, I think is a little bit fabricated, but I definitely, yeah, there are, there is a lot of truth to what she's saying, too, though. Like, you know, I'm, I'm alone. You have no idea what I'm going through. Yeah. If I can bring in some of the alternate material from the Bob Murawski's editor's cut of Spider-Man 3, it is interesting that uh, when Peter shows up to confront Harry the second time, he says, uh, you know, that was quite a performance today. And then Harry sort of laughs it off and says, ah, well, it wasn't all a show. She did come to me. Like, he's sort of confirming that, no, there is truth to what's going on here. She was lonely. You weren't there for her. There is another guy. She came to me. We made out. (laughs) No, that's true. She definitely was. Although, I I wonder if Mary Jane would have reached out to Harry in this movie when she was feeling low, if not for his bump on the head, kind of returning him to that high school personality. Like, I I wonder if she would have still reached out the same way if he were the way he had been up to right before the third movie. I think you might be on to something there, Sean. So, and uh, yeah, I think we'll we'll save that little tangent. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll web that up for now. But so we find Peter at this spot where he we've sort of visited him before toward the beginning of the Raimi trilogy. And similar to that, those same periods of time when he was feeling sort of on top of the world, on this bit of a power high, everything starts crashing down once again for him. Mm -hmm. The past returns to haunt Peter in the sense that he suddenly finds out that, guess what, his uncle's killer on the loose again. Turns out to be somebody else this time. But nonetheless, all those exact same emotions start flooding back. And, you know, it just happens to be irony that Peter feels more in control than he's ever been when this movie starts. And that just happens to be the wrong way to think because he's really teetering on the brink. These feelings he's been feeling have been blocking him from focusing on the hero that Uncle Ben has wanted him to be. Mm -hmm. And when things start crashing down again... Without Uncle Ben there and his guidance, Peter starts taking the wrong paths that uh, maybe are more inherent to him than one would think. Well, I think um, when he finds out about Uncle Ben's death or, you know, he's there when Uncle Ben dies and he finds out where the the killer or the the presumed killer is fleeing to, Mm -hmm. he gives chase and it's this it's full of fury and vengeance and, you know, this raw anger at, you know, avenging his uncle's death. And it's interesting that at that point, he was not at all under the influence of the symbiote. That was just there. There was something in him that snapped. You know, he went from this mild-mannered guy who didn't stand up to the bullies, but now he has these powers. And the powers themselves are almost kind of like the symbiote in the first movie in the sense that he gets this newfound sense of confidence. He's better about himself. He's willing to stand up to people that have wronged him. Like, he gets into the fight with Flash. And then, yeah, we just see him give chase to the to the robber there, and he's just full of this visceral anger, just this, just this thirst for revenge. And as you would expect him to be, which again, and and I think a lot of these emotions that uh, we we're talking about here are, you know, it's so easy to empathize, like uh, letting the robber go at the wrestling ring, wanting to avenge your, essentially your father's killer. Mm -hmm. That's something that a lot of people would certainly feel the same way in that moment. Now, if we didn't have enhanced abilities, I doubt any of us would have uh, pursued the killer so uh, actively like that. But certainly a lot of us would want to or we would at least want the police to you know, not uh, not be so nice when uh, capturing him. And, you know, I mean, these can all be metaphorical for other situations in our lives, too. You know, there may be other ways we can get back at people who have harmed us in some sort of way. Maybe not quite as literally as this. But, you know, it's a bit of a larger than life 
reflection of things that we all do go through in life. And yeah, like you say, it's beyond understandable, these feelings Peter would be feeling. And yeah, he has the ability. He's going to go track this guy down. He's he's furious. And you like you said, that's before any symbiote involvement. And indeed, when Peter learns once again his uncle's killer was on the loose, he snaps again. Because of course he would. Yeah. He, you know, he has no intention of settling down. You know, he screams at Captain Stacy, you're not doing your job. And that's before the symbiote, once again. I feel like Aunt May is probably not very used to seeing outbursts from uh, Peter like that. No, that's a good point. Maybe because of what they're talking about, maybe she would be more understanding of it. But certainly I have to imagine that she would not have a lot of experience uh, seeing him with that level of anger on display outwardly. No, that's a good point. And you sort of see her way of dealing with the same thing. You know, Peter gets angry. She gets upset, you know, in like a emotionally disturbed sort of sense. But um, I think she sort of feels like, what is the point in getting angry? Yeah, it's like done. it doesn't bring him. I'm not going to bring Ben back. Yeah. And we do sort of see that again later. You know, it's not for us to decide who lives or who dies. Um, now, this episode's all about the past returning, reflections of the past coming back to haunt Peter. And you said earlier, you spoke of that that newfound sense of confidence that that spider bite gave Peter in the first movie. Mm-hmm. It sort of, you know, elevates all the drama and the conflict here to a supernatural fantasy mythical level. You know, this is human emotions on display, but blown up to large proportions. You know, it all begins with that spider bite, mm-hmm. this path of growth and development and maturity that Peter has to undergo. In this movie, Peter has another bite. Hmm. In this movie, when Venom takes him over, when Peter's at his most vulnerable, emotionally dealing with the issues of his life, dealing with his relationship trouble with MJ, feeling a little too overconfident in himself and his abilities, and then also being confronted with the killer of his uncle again, he's extremely vulnerable for when that black goo Mm -hmm. creeps out from his room and it bites him. Hmm. When it latches on... It's no coincidence that it goes for the the same spot, Hmm. but on his opposite hand Hmm. as that spider bite. Huh. This is very clearly a dark reflection of that. You know, in the same way that, you know, he got that newfound sense of confidence from that spider bite in the first movie. This is a parallel opposing that. Well, even the way that they show that scene is kind of a reflection, too, because, again, he's in his bed sleeping Mm -hmm. and, you know, there's these terrible thoughts going through his head as he's uh, dreaming there and then he wakes up and he feels totally different mm. i think you're right it's very much like a dark reprise of that scene from the first movie where he wakes up and you know interesting in the first movie he wakes up after the bite you know it's daylight he's looking in the mirror he's shirtless but um in the third movie he wakes up from whatever happened there and he's he has no idea where he is it's dark you know he's not showing his face or any of himself he's in the suit there, it's... Checking himself out once again in the mirror. Yeah, it's all—it's almost like, you know, the way he's like, where am I? It kind of reminds me of like somebody who, you know, blacked out from being drunk or something, you know, something else. Like, they just kind of have no idea how they got there. It's I think like you're almost, right. He's tripping a little bit. Yeah. This, this is a substance that he's abusing. He was like drunk on the power. Yeah. And he wakes up and he's like, like, what's going on? Mm-hmm. But then, unlike most hangovers, he actually feels better. <laughs> but... um I think you're right. It's, it's mimicking scene from the first movie and kind of accentuating a lot of it, Well, it's kind of accentuating the same things, but in an even more sinister way, let's say. And I think that's key here that this suit it enhances 
his dark emotions. It enhances his power. And as a result, he does lose some of his control to it. So sort of like when you are abusing a substance, Mm -hmm. it makes you do things that maybe you wouldn't have ordinarily chosen to do. Mm -hmm. But what is key is when he's going after his uncle's killer, he chooses to put it on. He knows what's going to happen to him, but he chooses to let go of that control in return for that power and for how that suit is going to make him feel. Yeah. So maybe he wouldn't be completely culpable for what he did in the suit, except for the fact that he actively chooses to put on that suit and let what happens happen. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting here is that in that first movie, when Peter's confronted with this man, he really doesn't necessarily have a whole lot of time to think or to meditate on being face-to-face with his uncle's killer. He he ends up face-to-face with him, and then fairly quickly, Peter makes a move, and he trips. It's over. It's out of Peter's hands. Mm -hmm. You know, here, when his uncle's killer returns and history repeats itself, now Peter has a lot more time to think about it, you know, to contemplate and to premeditate on this. Mm -hmm. And he actively chooses to listen constantly to his police scanner until he gets any hint or sign of this. He gets Mm -hmm. a little obsessed. Then he chooses to put on that black suit. And he chooses to kill Flint Marco. Or at least what he thinks is killing him. I mean, for all intents and purposes. Oh, for sure. If Peter believes that he killed him, then, you know, it's... (laughs) <laughs> that's more or less what happened. I mean, it's it's only because Peter didn't fully understand how the Sandman's powers worked, nor did Sandman, that he survived. Yeah. But Peter clearly has it out for him, brutally oh, yeah. confronting him. And just all the weight of the past comes back to Peter. You know, we see him reliving it constantly in his mind as he's dreaming, having these nightmares. These images come back to him. Mm-hmm. We return to this sort of black and white motif that we had in the first movie even as Peter's flashing back and realizing that this is the same man he led away. You know, we have these black and white flashbacks as Peter's reliving all these horrors of the past Mm -hmm. and all that weight is immediately back upon him. And like he says, this is everything to him. Uncle Ben was everything Mm -hmm. and what he meant to him was everything and losing it, he lost everything. And yeah, I mean, he just lets Flint Marco have it. And it's brutal, and it's hard to watch, and with with every intent of killing him. That's, yeah, boy, he says good riddance. Good riddance, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's kind of, you know, people make fun of Spider-Man in this movie under the influence of the symbiote suit, but I think that line is very chilling. The way it's delivered by Tobey Maguire, I think, is very chilling. Yeah. There's this cold, sinister, almost like, I don't know. It's in just... combination with seeing Sandman's like disintegrating hand reaching yeah. out, you know, as if for some sort of last plea for help. Yeah. As Peter watches coldly. Yeah. It's so, definitely. You know, it sort of calls to mind too what might Peter have done in the first movie? That's what I was going to say. Yeah. If it hadn't sort of been taken out of his hands. You know, I mean, this is exactly what MJ was worried about that he would do something he would regret. Yeah. And. With Spider-Man 3 reflecting the past like this and sort of giving more context to the first movie as this beautiful Ouroboros that it is of a trilogy here, we've discussed this in our Oscorp Oracle episode, but Peter has this 
quest for vengeance here mm-hmm. in the same way that Norman has his quest for vengeance against the board members. And the difference here is that that choice is sort of taken from Peter. But if he had ended up killing Carradine and sort of indulging in that usage of his powers as vengeance, as taking what I want, doing what I want, because I have the power, I'm a god, I'm an icon, I can do whatever I want. Being judge, jury, and executioner all in one. Yeah, then he would have followed Norman down that path. And he follows Norman down that path in this movie. Hmm. He becomes the villain. Mm -hmm. You know, Sandman isn't so much a villain. He's a good person who's had bad luck. And Peter is the one bloodthirstily chasing him down. exactly. And there's no finer point on this than when Peter himself throws a pumpkin bomb and it blows up in Harry's face as a dark reflection Mm. of what the goblin once did to Peter himself. You know, he scars his best friend's face with it. Peter has become the goblin. Hmm. Norman Osborn's proposal has finally been taken up on. (laughs) Wow, that's interesting. It's dark. <laughs> wow. And I think it makes Peter hard to watch in this. And it, it's a really hard lesson for Peter to learn in this. And so when finally he does speak with Sandman, with Flint Marco, Peter's forced to admit, I've done terrible things too. Like we said, Peter's idea of good and evil is a little bit black and white early on in this series. But by the end, he's forced to really look at people how they're confronted with different circumstances. Mm-hmm. Good people can make bad choices. And, and honestly, too, there's a couple of things I was thinking about. Um, first of all, the flashbacks kind of reveal eventually that even though Marco Marco technically killed Uncle Ben, it wasn't, he didn't intentionally pull the trigger. It looks yeah. like Carradine sort of bumped into him. It was kind of an accident if to an extent. Yeah, um, he did have was, a loaded gun he did. cocked so at his That's chest. what I mean. Like you can only cut him so much slack there. Mm-hmm. It was a robbery. It was a carjacking. In law, they would call that a felony murder. The murder liability would attach as well. But, you know, it looked like Marco clearly was reluctant. He didn't particularly want to be doing this. He wasn't doing it just for violence's sake. No, So it's kind of shaded in gray. But yes, he did have a pointed gun or a loaded gun pointed at a defenseless old man. But he didn't shoot him volitionally. It was more like, unfortunately, the gun went off and that was that. So I think that sort of further clouds this idea he deserved to be chased down and hunted down by Peter like he was because even though he did kill his uncle Peter had it in his mind that he you know wanted to and enjoyed killing Uncle Ben whereas I think in reality he didn't he clearly had a lot of guilt over it and he clearly had a lot of remorse and you know wishes he could take the whole thing back so yeah that, that doesn't totally you know exonerate or it's not totally exculpatory but it, mm-hmm. it's it is somewhat mitigating. Mm. So that's one thing. The second thing was I, I'm thinking about in the third movie that conversation where Peter tells Aunt May Spider-Man um, killed Flint mm-hmm. and thinking that Aunt May would be happy, yeah. thinking that she would be you know, approving of that, thinking that she would be just as excited as he was. And she's like kind of repulsed by that. Like, you know, how could... Shocked horrified. Yeah. Like, you know, like why would Spider-Man do that? You know, that's... Yeah. She just is so appalled by this that uh, spider-man would do something so bloodthirsty even if you know in peter's mind it's totally justified like you know hunting down you know their uncle's killer yeah he's clearly surprised that aunt may didn't react the way he thought she would like i thought everybody would feel this way yeah aunt may very clearly has this feeling like yeah uncle ben meant the world to us he did mean everything to us 
if you're upset that somebody killed your uncle, why would you want someone to kill this father, this husband, in, in addition to that? Peter is clearly espousing the philosophy of an eye for an eye. Yep. This guy killed my uncle, therefore he deserves to be killed. May clearly takes the other side of, well, regardless of what he did to, to me, and he, you know, he took my husband away, he took my whole yeah. world away, I still don't think it's up for me or for society to decide that he should die before his time. And especially because we just don't know everything. You know, as Peter comes to learn, he doesn't understand the whole story here. Peter learns that good and evil is not as black and white as he thought. It's not as clear cut because this movie does have sort of this theme of perspective in it a little bit here. Mm, yeah. Because as we see in Peter's mind, he visualizes what Flint Marco does as much more intentional and violent and bloodthirsty mm -hmm. than what really happened. Peter had the story all wrong. Exactly. That exactly. And even then we see that again reflected with Harry. Harry's completely misinterpreting what happened between Peter and his father. And when Harry gets his memories back later in this movie, he even sort of fabricates these memories by accident where, you know, he's like, my father, he died, right? And then he imagines Peter being kind of like happy. So, yeah, you know, hmm. and he's getting this all twisted. People, people's perspectives can be different from reality. And so Peter's realizing oh, sure. that, you know, if I'm going to be a hero, I can't necessarily be judge, jury, and executioner. You know, I can try to help and do what's right. Yeah. But, I mean, there's a far cry between webbing up some guys that are robbing a store or, you know, stopping a madman who's trying to hurt a bunch of kids or, you know, mm -hmm. blow up the city and actually killing someone who harmed me personally. Yeah. So Peter sort of has another rebirth with this venom bite, just like he did with the spider bite in the first one. You know, the first one was sort of an outward extension of his struggles to adjust to adulthood. Mm -hmm. You know, this rebirth with a black suit is an outward extension of his inner fight against that anger and hatred within him. And, you know, at the same time, life is giving him a second chance to confront his uncle's killer. And it's mm -hmm. a heavy burden to face. It's not one that anyone would want. And it just hits Peter when he's nowhere near ready for it. Wow. Heavy, heavy stuff. <laughs> It's so good. <laughs> I agree. It's it's so it's so good and so dark. It, I agree. I think that's one of the things that makes Spider-Man 3 hard to watch is because it does get really dark and really heavy. And I think it's clear that Sam wanted to try to lighten it up and keep the mood a little bit, you know, keep it in the same sort of spirit as the first two films. And, you know, so there's a little bit of comedy. There's a little bit of um, uh, slightly dissonant music choices in it, mm -hmm. you know, to try to keep it light, to try to buoy this really dark material that is very difficult to watch our hero of Spider-Man 1 and Spider-Man 2 go through. It's hard to watch sometimes oh, what Peter's yeah, absolutely. doing. Absolutely. But, you know, it's something we can still all relate to in a oh, lot of ways. It, it, exactly. And that's the genius of, of the way these movies are made. Dark and heavy stuff. It's it, Exactly. It's hard to watch, but entirely relatable. And again, sort of the beauty of what Spider-Man 3 does is... It takes advantage of being the third movie in a trilogy, and it actively continues to remind us of these events from the past so that we can sort of compare them to where we are then, to where we are now, and we're able to like use this intertextuality to get a further, better idea of the events of then and the events of now, and maybe how far Peter's come for better or worse. Yeah. Like I said, when Peter takes that pumpkin bomb and throws that Harry, we know what that means. That would have been bad regardless. But when he does it in the same way that Norman did it, 
after Norman had asked him to follow his path and Peter refused, we realize, oh, he did it. Peter succumbed to that terrible choice from Spider-Man 1. Peter basically becomes the goblin in this movie. That's Yeah. I, I love that. I think that's such an interesting take on it. Well, as we said in a previous episode, the ghost of Norman looms large here. And it's even present in this moment where we sort of see Peter finally taking him up on that offer. And hmm. it's it's horrifying. It all comes full circle here. Peter sinks lower and lower until he finally has to climb his way back to the top. And uh, he will never be the same after this movie. Wow. Hmm. In addition to all of that, you know, we get that moment of Peter looking up and seeing MJ in her window toward the end of the movie after he's disavowed Venom. Mm-hmm. And wants to try to apologize to her, but he uh, he just sort of gives up on it. He knows, like, what can he say? What can he do? And so yeah. he just walks away. And that moment sort of calls back to him seeing MJ in the window in the first movie. Hmm. It sort of, again, reminds you of the past, of where they've been, hmm. of where they are, and sort of how far Peter's come from that. Hmm. Sort of how far he's fallen. How far, but... In some ways. How far, but how also not very far at all he's come from that, I would say. In some ways, he's sort of just as far from her in this relationship as he was back then in Spider-Man 1. He knew her then, in a sense. And at this one, he's he's really damage the relationship it's a question of how irreparable exactly that, that all comes to mind as he as he sees her exactly that's what i mean like he's come so far but also not far at all in True. terms of yeah can he make a relationship with mary jane work he's wanted her for so long can it actually work and yeah you know when he's looking at her in that window there in the third movie after you know their horrible encounter at the jazz club there yeah. you know and just peter being emotionally unavailable to her for most of that movie it's just very much in doubt yeah yeah well, boy, Peter, this is certainly some heavy stuff here. I don't know about you, but I could use a little levity, and I can't think of a better way to lighten the mood than to try to stump each other with some obscure trivia questions. I'm ready to uh, challenge you with a trivia question. Likewise, I'm ready to be challenged. Would you like to take the first one, Sean? Sure. I'll, sure, I'll go first here. Okay, so... Name the news anchor who first alerts us and Spider-Man in the movie about Mary Jane's abduction by Venom and uh, Sandman. Hal Fishman. You are correct. He's uh, sort of a staple of New York news, as I understand. Well, he, he, actually, he was sort of a staple of New yeah, York he, news. Yeah, um, he ended up passing away only a few months after the movie came out. Oh, man. Oh. So, well, it's nice to have him immortalized in yeah, the film, he was then. Ju- He's like a real life um, New York uh, news anchor, which is really cool. I mean, in terms of like realism, that's what dang. that's what I'm saying. Gives it some authenticity. Uh, all right, and for bonus points, can you name the uh, the name of that? You always have one for bonus points. I never do bonus points. Well, maybe every once in a while I do bonus points with you, but you always have bonus points. All right, well, what's what's the follow up here? Can you name <laughs> the reporter who is covering the fight between Spider Man, Venom, and Sandman out in the field there? The news reporter. Um, is it like Holly or something? It's, um, Jennifer, Jennifer Dugan. Yep. You are correct. Wow. It just came to me all of a sudden. <laughs> oh, geez. Well, you're, you're, I don't know where I got Holly from. No, you're, you're, uh, no, you're, you got it right. Um, <laughs> okay, Sean. So I guess, uh, I'm a little bit more brilliant than usual. I would say based on that, here comes your question, Sean. Oh boy. Okay. So. We're talking about the past here, this episode, and in this film, Peter recreates his famous kiss with MJ with Gwen instead. 
Mm-hmm. Not a great move from Peter. But if Peter's wallet also recreated its contents from the night of Peter's famous kiss with MJ, how much money would Peter have for a cheeseburger? The sky's the limit, Sean. Oh. <laughs> Isn't it like $7? And? Okay, so $7 and some change. Uh, 39 cents? How many? 39? $7.39? 39? No, I'm afraid not, Sean. You're darn close, though. It's up to $7.84. That was it. <laughs> well, I knew the, I knew it was seven, so I'm, I'm like half brilliant there. You're half brilliant. Half lazy, yeah. I would. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. As we've discussed, yeah, our, our new way of saying half full or half empty, half brilliant or half lazy. <laughs> Uh, yeah, half brilliant there, Sean, I would say. Uh, okay. Not too shabby. Yeah, these, this is good, though. This is what I signed up for with, uh, with the trivia here. You know, we're <laughs> co- you know, plumbing the we depths of these some, movies. We do. We go for some pretty obscure things, and that's just the way I like it. Well, turns out you're brilliant. I'm half brilliant. Uh, that's okay. <laughs> it's a lot of pressure being at the head of the class. <laughs> you're the one that gets the mirror shined in your face. Uh, I'm the guy that's oh, yeah. uh, shining it at you. <laughs> Parker, got something to add? No, sir. Uh, Peter kind of rips on Gwen in that moment, too. He's like, she's not the best, you know, at the subject. I got to say, though, I don't know what they were talking about, but, I mean, Gwen sure seemed to know what she was talking about more than I yeah. do. It, it, so. Or at the very least, like, she had, you know, there was an enthusiasm there, which, you know, even yeah, if... Yeah, good learner. Yeah, so it's like, even if you don't necessarily get the subject all that well, you can still be a good student of it, so... Like, look at SpongeBob. Look at how many times he's failed that boating exam, but yet he's always like the most excited student in Mrs. Puff's class. So maybe it's something like that. True point, Sean. So let's get back into this episode. Well, yeah. So speaking of uh, brilliant or lazy and positions in the class, you know, we uh, we get a nice reprise in this movie of the high school version of Harry Osborne. Yeah, we get high school Harry and we get the Goblin both returning in this. Not at the same time, but both in this film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course, very overtly, we get another goblin, New Goblin, as he's credited in the film's end credits, again coming to wreak havoc on Peter's life. And like we said, that that spirit of Norman looms large. And of course, you know, Norman himself appears to Harry, and he's credited as Green Goblin slash Norman Osborn in the end credits. So that's mm. the spirit of the goblin still there, coming back to wreak his final vengeance. And you know what? In a sense, he very nearly wins, as we've said, when Peter ends up following down that path that he once proposed to him. Thinking back to that, I don't think it's any coincidence that when Peter's at the jazz club there with the explicit purpose of humiliating and embarrassing Mary Jane, Norman Osborn is in the background there. Yeah, you know, it's weird. That's that's not Willem Dafoe, Hmm. actually, but it's someone that sort of looks strikingly like him. And it does seem a little interesting, conspicuous, I don't know, that they would place them sort of right between Peter and Gwen, like right in the background there as Peter's preparing this truly terrible emotional vengeance on MJ, who really doesn't need anybody else to be putting down her sense of self, Mm -hmm. especially not her best friend. So it is very interesting to have that sort of specter in some ways reflected back there. But yes, uh, more explicitly, though, yeah, Norman comes back in spirit form to give Harry advice about how to finally avenge his death and uh, you know go after Spider-Man again. 
Yeah. And as you said before, high school Harry returns too, in a sense. Mm -hmm. Harry finds himself freed of this baggage of the, the drama between Peter and MJ and his father. Bump on the head, he's as free as a bird. He's in a pretty good state, you know? He doesn't seem to be burdened with whatever's going on at Oscorp. In fact, we never really hear about it. Yeah, He's I was actually thinking life. about that. Yeah. I was thinking about that, but, you know, like just how in the second movie, they make it pretty clear that Harry's involved at the company there. He's in charge of special projects. You know, he's there sponsoring Dr. Octavius's experiments. Whereas in this movie, we don't hear a word about Oscorp. All we see Harry do, aside from being the new goblin, is he's painting a bowl of fruit at one point. And yeah. <laughs> I mean, at the end of the last movie, he declares that he's ruined. I mean, we don't necessarily know the depths of that, you know, what exactly has happened to Oscorp. Yeah. He doesn't seem to be in too much financial straits in this movie. But, you know, from that point on in Spider-Man 2, he kind of fills his life with his obsession over Spider-Man. You know, your father only obsessed over his work, sir. <laughs> and I suppose once that's gone, once, you know, he's not working as deeply as the company and once he's not obsessing over Spider-Man, once that's relieved from him, what does he have? Well, he's got, uh, I guess I'll look for some girlfriends. Uh, you know, I, I guess I'll paint some fruit. You know, <laughs> let my artistic side come out. I mean, uh, he, he is a pretty good painter there. I mean, the, the, it's a pretty good painting. Of oh, yeah, I think it's pretty good. Still got the moves for the brush stroke. That <laughs> uh, I, I, I didn't, I didn't work. That <laughs> didn't make any sense. Well, <laughs> you know, I think, I think it's interesting here to kind of talk about you know, Mary Jane when she's feeling alone in this movie. Uh, yeah. with, with the knowledge that Harry is free as a bird and kind <laughs> of a much more easygoing guy, yeah. she calls him up when she's kind of feeling alone and just in need of some companionship. And I I find a couple of things interesting about that. Number one, I don't think she would have called Harry had he not kind of gotten his bump on the head because she's aware that something is weird between him and Peter. She you know says that at the beginning of the movie. Yeah. And I think she's aware that Harry's been just a lot more stressed or angry or just not really enjoyable to be around after his father passed and after running the company and after the devastation of Spider-Man 2, with, which apparently ruined Oscorp. So. Yeah, and similarly, she seems to be aware now that, you know, you guys seem pretty good after yeah. she visits him in the hospital and she becomes aware that, oh, everything... It looks like you guys are pretty good now, you know, so she does seem to see yeah. Harry is in a better state. And um, another sort of instance of the past returning here, hmm. there's sort of a second chance here for Harry and MJ. And another interesting parallel in this movie is once again, we find Peter at an event, you know, some sort of big celebration. And there's MJ and Harry going to this event together, much like the World Unity Day Festival. Hmm. We find Harry and MJ together here, sort of, you know, getting to catch up a little bit, you know, getting a little closer once again. And I think the moment where Mary Jane really, at least temporarily, sort of falls for him, or at least this idea of him, is when, you know, when he's reading her that play he wrote back in high school. Yeah. Because, again, she's feeling very, very down on herself as an actor. And, like, not only did he write a play that he would want her to star in, but, like, he wrote it about her. And, like, I think she's feeling particularly uplifted and particularly touched by that. Somebody really, once again, really cares about her. Someone's really listening to her, going through the trouble to write a play. They know that she loves to act. Yeah. And they've gone through this trouble of doing something for her in what they know that she loves. You know, and I think I think that all starts at that key to the city 
celebration. Mm -hmm. She's shocked and appalled by what Peter does. She can barely stomach it. Harry runs over to see what's wrong with her. Harry's paying attention. He can tell something's bothering her. He's already from the get-go. He's there for her. Mm -hmm. Even before that, he sent her flowers to her show. He attended. He was there for her. And not only that, but they were... They were much, much bigger than the ones that Peter sent. <laughs> yeah, well, what are you going to do? You know, Pete's only got $7.84 <laughs> to spend on flowers. But, you know, these are two people who had dated before and they get a second chance here. I mean, which, yeah, it's it's weird because like, you know, you don't want to root for them in that movie because you're like, oh, she's supposed to be with Peter. This is wrong. But at the same time, there is something kind of charming. There's like this playfulness, this sort of flirtatiousness with their, up until they kiss, you know, after that, it all changes, but yeah, but it's kind of, it's fun to watch. We are seeing the past returning here. Yeah. We're right back to that love triangle that they were once in, in Spider-Man one, where Peter and Harry both know the other one is interested in Mary Jane. Mm -hmm. It plays out one way there, but like here again, as we're looking at the past again, we sort of get sort of a what if scenario here. Mm Mm-hmm. This is, once again, Harry, as he was in Spider-Man 1, less weighted down with the trauma that he would receive. And, you know, what would happen if Peter was sort of followed that different path in that movie? You know, I guess we're sort of realizing just how fragile some of these paths are that they're taking. It's like an alternate reality in a way where Mary Jane ended up with Harry and not Peter after the events of the first movie. But to put an even finer point... On this idea of, like, this is Harry as he was in Spider-Man 1. When Harry returns home, he's once again wearing this red shirt Mm -hmm. and this green sort of large jacket. The same way he was when we were first introduced to him Mm. in Spider-Man 1 when he went to the field trip. Yeah. We have this strong visual signifier of this is Harry getting a chance to return to that past here. Hmm. This is past Harry sort of returning to the present and seeing how it would be different. And you're right. It's hard sort of not to root for Harry here because he is there for MJ. He is empathetic. He does care. He's just a lot more easygoing and it's fun. There, You you take away all that drama, all the trouble of her relationship with Peter. And it's just, it's, it's kind of refreshing almost. Yeah. But yeah, it's like whenever she goes over there and they're just having fun, dancing to the twist, making an omelet, it's like, it's kind of hard not to get a little bit uh, wrapped up in that, I think. Yeah. Takes you right back to Spider-Man 1, and you're like, you know what? I could see these two working. Yeah. And that's one of the tragedies of the movie, is that, yeah, who knows? If Harry hadn't been so laden with the things he was dealing with, with his father's passing and his obsession with Spider-Man and running the company, who knows how much differently things could have gone for Harry? Yeah, I don't know. I. It's like, the first movie doesn't really show this fun side of their relationship, but I, I I definitely get the impression that if they were to stay together and he didn't revert back to his more villainous side, I, I think it, it could, I could see it working out because she certainly seemed to enjoy being around him in many ways more than in you know the, we saw her a lot of the time with Peter or with uh, John Jameson you know for comparison you know yeah that's like the most I've seen her laugh and enjoy herself around anybody in any of these movies like I don't really think we ever see her like that with Peter except for when they're on their you know that date early in the movie on the on top of that web but otherwise we don't see her and Peter just having fun together at least I don't think we do no I don't think we do either not very much. Yeah. It's like most of their, you know, scenes together, it's, you know, something dramatic happening. So yeah. it's kind of fun to just have something a little bit more lighthearted. Yeah. Before too long, it, it, it kind of loses all of that. But um, yeah. <laughs> and 
the moment when Mary Jane and Harry kiss each other, it seemed to awaken something. At least it put things in motion in his brain that eventually lead to him getting kind of his memory back and becoming obsessed once again with going after Spider-Man. Yeah. Well, because once again, Peter's taken MJ from him. <laughs> and then it's like, oh, yeah, that's right. He also took my father's love for me. Oh, yeah, that's right. I hate Peter. I forgot. <laughs> Funny how those things can slip your mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Amnesia is a weird thing. You know, I just it's it's not an uncommon uh, thing they use in TV and movies. No. This is sort of a sometimes criticism of the movie in that it sort of stoops to this. Um, it's kind of a very tropey soap opera esque yeah. gimmick. Yeah. Uh, however, like I said, I think it sort of ties into this theme of all these characters sort of reverting to the past and like yeah. the, the past and the present sort of merge again and sort of illuminate each other and ties together all these different themes and all these different ways of personal development. And I think it just illuminates it a lot more and is able to build off of it in a very special way. Yeah. Because, like I said, I mean, we get to see what Harry would be like, mm -hmm. like this. And we're, like you said, we're pretty much on his side. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think it's a very interesting device. Yeah. And, of course, by the end of it, it's once more a goblin who is pierced and a goblin who's laid to rest at a final funeral at the end of this movie. It doesn't get much more bookending than that, this returning to the past. Except in this case... Harry's managed to sort of, you know, in a sense, change the past here. The past repeats itself, but in the opposite way. And it's Harry that chooses to sacrifice himself for Peter. It's Harry who chooses to do what's right. You know, at a great cost to him. He gives up his life for Peter, as mm -hmm. he says he would earlier in the movie. You know, he would give his life for these friends. And so Harry is sort of finally the one himself... That sort of ends the goblin, the mm -hmm. reign of the Green Goblin. Yeah. You know, the goblin dies with him in a sense, but even before Harry actually dies, he sort of suppresses and therefore sort of kills the goblin mm. by finally overcoming that goblin's mission to kill Peter. And then that's all just sort of cemented by him dying in the same way, but with the complete opposite purpose and intention. Mm-hmm. Interesting, too, how it takes the sacrifice of Harry to make Peter finally uh, maybe realize that people aren't all good or bad or all one or the other. You know, it's only after Harry makes his heroic sacrifice in the battle against Venom that Peter manages to forgive uh, Flint Marco for, you know, what happened with Uncle Ben. And it shows, you know, it's the choices that make us who we are. And we can always choose to do what's right, no matter what battles are raging inside of us. Isn't that funny? Because we are who we choose to be. Yeah. Once again, you know, somebody taking up Norman's advice just in, in a very unexpected way. Yes, absolutely. You're, you're so right. I mean, again, that's <laughs> history coming full circle there. The Raimi trilogy coming full circle. Norman Osborn, he is this objectivist sort of self-made, be what you want to be, you know, take it into your own hands. We are who we choose to be. And he sort of threatens Peter with that, you know, that self, you know, self-creation. But Harry, you know, Harry lives it and he shows it in a different way. He shows it in a very self-sacrificing way. The choices are what make us who we are. We are who we choose to be. And Harry chose to be the best of himself, even to the detriment of himself, for the hmm. good of his, the friends that he loves more than anyone else. So yeah, again, that's Harry making this heroic arc wow. of retwisting everything that his father, the goblin, ever stood for. <laughs> 
wow. as the new goblin. It all fits. It's together. so cool, isn't it? It all fits together. It all fits together. Wow, that is it's that is so just, amazing. That is just just wow. My mind is kind of blown here. Just wow. <laughs> just it, it, that's it's, that's great. It's good. That is great. And see again, yeah. again. How how could a how could a bad movie have this much symmetry? You know, to an earlier work in the same trilogy. I mean, I'm sorry, but like. Wow, this is just this is great. Like this was all this all had to be there. Like this, this was all by else. design. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful movie, to be frank, and it's a beautiful trilogy. Well, it's and a you beautiful know, story. You know, it's funny, Peter, the more we've gone through this podcast, um, and I said this I think with the episode about Mary Jane, like watching their relationship, Peter and Mary Jane's relationship in that movie go through so much torment it made me have a lot more respect for it at the end that they were, they'd been through that and they were still giving it a shot. They were still trying. And I think just talking about Harry here and how he so thoroughly repudiates what his dad was saying in the first movie. Again, it just adds such a richness to it that I hadn't thought about before, but there is such a stunning repudiation of his father's philosophy there. And the irony is, it's like, again, like Norman being proved wrong. Like he says these things thinking that he'll be proven right. And mm-hmm. he's not. And not only that, but like the goblin itself, like you said, is, is killed in that moment when Harry sacrifices himself. It, he not just kills himself. He kills any chance of the goblin continuing on as well. So just what a. Yeah, what, I mean, wow. I think they set it up well, like we said, when they, you know, established Norman as the Green Goblin, as the the villain of the first one, and set up all of these ideas right from the jump, you know, that Norman would be the arch villain of the whole series. You know, yeah. we, we teased this, you know, Harry following in his father's footsteps at the end of that one, and here we finally get that here. And he does, you know, we get to see that in spades, and then it's it's his ends up being his son that that finally overcomes that specter of Norman, you know. Wow. That has been the arch villain of these movies. Wow. Yeah, that is <laughs> that is powerful stuff. Yeah. And it and it all still manages to tie into, you know, what's going on with Peter, you know, his story, what he needs to learn here. Because, you know, speaking of those choices, Peter, I think in some ways he sort of feels like he made a choice. I, I made a choice, you know, to live this life. I've done it. It's in the past. Well, not really. You know, this this film shows more than any of them, you know, if nothing else, things don't necessarily always stay in the past. You know, mm-hmm. things are in motion. You don't make a choice and then it's done forever. You're sort of continuously reaffirming and living up to those choices you've made. Like when Peter stops analyzing them, when he stops taking them into consideration, it sort of gets away from him, the purpose of what he's doing, mm-hmm. the way he sees the world, you know, but... Life is a never-ending series of choices, you know, and it's it's it is sort of a constant struggle to choose to be the person you want to be. I I couldn't agree more. I mean, it, it's all about these choices that people make, and sometimes for better, sometimes for worse. Yeah, you know? and sometimes you don't make that choice right away. Sometimes you make the wrong choice first, but you you later come back and try to make it right. So yeah, yeah, it certainly suggests that you know no matter what's going on. We can always choose to do what's right. Mm -hmm. I think what Peter learns sort of at the end of the day is that it's not enough to call yourself a hero just because you were a hero. 
you know, every day presents these new chances to, to make the choice, mm-hmm. to continually choose to be a hero. You know, Peter does finally reaffirm that choice at the end of this movie when we again get sort of another call back to the past. When he began his mission of being Spider-Man in earnest, we see him pull that suitcase out from under his bed. You know, he takes out the drawing, he pulls out the the suit that he originally worked on Mm -hmm. as part of the wrestling match. And we get that responsibility theme from Danny Elfman, and we get those mythic drums building up until we see him in action again in the first movie. And we get that recreated here. He reaches under his bed, pulls out that suitcase, and there's the suit, the old red and blue. Mm -hmm. Again, the responsibility theme plays, those mythic drums beat beneath it, and he again takes on that responsibility and finally reaffirms his calling to being this hero, this hero that he's chosen to be. He's continued to choose to be this hero. It's not an easy choice. It takes a toll on him, but he ultimately, he makes that choice. It's not easy. Requires a lot of sacrifice, sometimes compromising what you want. But he he makes that choice every day, inspired by the sacrifice and the wisdom of, of those who have come before him. Yeah. So he's making a choice about who he wants to be. And now, Peter, I think it's time for us to have to make some hard decisions. <laughs> because we are who, who we, we choose, choose to be. be. <laughs> okay, Sean, what have you got for me this time? Okay. All right. Would you rather... Have to pay a young girl for what, by all appearances, is a crappy camera and extra for film to take photographs of one of the blockbuster news events of the year, but you're a safe distance away from the fighting. Or would you have to be that news reporter who is obviously horrified by Spider-Man being pummeled uh, by the Sandman, but you are duty-bound to report it to the world? So in other words, you know, would you rather be J. Jonah Jameson who doesn't have to report it as it's happening. He just has to take photographs and can sort of reflect on it later and how he wants to present it to the world. Or, or would you rather Dugan. be Je- Jennifer Dugan, who is, you know, an eyewitness, you know, speaking into the microphone as this happens. And, you, you know, just you can, you know, just feeling all those emotions and that horror and the, the fear of, you know, c- oh, of what ha- what's happening to Spider-Man here. So I don't know. I guess it's kind of a sadistic wow. choice. Maybe it's not as humorous as I thought. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh it would certainly be easier to be Jameson in that role. And yeah, you got to pay a couple bucks for that camera. But to be don't, perfectly... And don't forget, film's extra. Yeah, that's true. But to be perfectly truthful to myself, as you may or may not recall, Sean, uh, we were on the school paper together. We were. <laughs> I think school I would... School paper? Pref- yeah. I think I would prefer to be Jennifer Dugan. I just sort of think I would rather actually sort of take up that duty of sharing that event, you know, trying to get across, (laughs) you know, what was happening to people. Yeah, I'd probably choose to be uh, Jennifer Dugan there. I mean, you're you're an eyewitness to history. Oh, really? Yeah, I don't know. As much as Mr. Jameson has... There's that history major in you. Yeah, I don't... As much as he's, uh, you know, carrying on an important function as well by, you know, getting photographic evidence of of what's happening, I would rather... Mm -hmm. As horrible as it would be, like, I mean, again, there's something about being that eyewitness to history there and not only that, but you're conveying it to other people in that moment. It's kind of an it's an historical record that is very important later on. Like, and people can look back on it and get a sense of what was really the feeling about something. So, that historian in you, yeah. I mean, it is horrible. It is horrific. But I don't know. I think there's something important 
about that. That I don't know. I I don't know. I I suppose I would choose that actually. No, I, I agree. So yeah, I guess my question wasn't as humorous yeah. as I thought. <laughs> yeah, that's more. No, that was that was quite uh, a little on the soul searching side there, Sean. <laughs> hmm. Wow. <laughs> but Sean, at the same time, we've been discussing the past resurfacing here, and yet sometimes. Things can just stay in the past, and pish posh, we didn't talk about it. So, Sean, where do you like your water? Over the dam or under the bridge? That's a very interesting question. Um, well, you know, Aunt May, she she's pretty open about wh- where people prefer their water. Yeah. Um, I've always said water under the bridge. That's kind of how I've always um, heard that expression used. I, I have heard water over the dam, but... Um, I have to say, I think I would prefer the water not going over the dam. I think the water. Yeah, I was going to say the dam. I feel like the, the dam is supposed to keep <laughs> the water back. Um, and for what it's worth, I've always loved bridges. I think bridges are fascinating pieces of engineering. Mm. So I perhaps choose that phrase because of I just like bridges more. Hey, I sure, find why uh, not? I've always found bridges, you know, very pleasant to look at and think about. And you know, the the symbolism there is always nice that you're trying to bring two places together for the benefit of all. So, mm. mm-hmm. yeah. So, but so, yeah, uh, I guess I, I would choose water, uh, water under the bridge. That's water under the bridge. Yeah. I'm inclined to agree with you. I did sort of try to look up a little bit about the etymology of this phrase, incidentally. And I suppose it has something to do with like, once water has passed from onto the bridge underneath it into the, the river, you know, it's gone. Yeah. You know, so it's, yeah, the past is gone. You can't do anything to change it. it may, Same it makes thing sense. about the dam. Once it's over the dam, it's gone. You can't get it back. You know, yeah. It's run off. You know. Mm, no, and no. so I, yeah, I see where it's coming from. But I, I do have to agree. I, I would prefer my water under the bridge. And I like what you said about that metaphor. It also sort of like brings to mind bringing things together for the good of all. So I like that. Yeah. Under the bridge it is. Yeah. I, I think it's a good phrase for that reason. I think it does capture like well it's you know it's in the past what what good is it to fuss about it now and likewise i mean i think it's interesting that aunt may uses that phrase too because you know when peter tells her that flint marco was killed her reaction is like well what good does that do what that doesn't make anything better why would spider-man think that was a good idea Hmm. and for what it's worth um it's interesting that you know flint marco was presumably killed by water sort of over the dam or at least in the sewage system (laughs) So mm. kind of interesting how, I mean, it's more of a coincidence than anything. Yeah, but Flint Marco definitely doesn't prefer his water anywhere. I, I don't know how he lives. Uh, yeah. Does he need to drink still? Does I, he need to I, eat? I, I don't, don't know. know. Maybe not. That's so many unanswered questions here. But either <laughs> way, uh, yeah, I'm sure he he doesn't care what uh, piece of civil engineering you put the water in or around. <laughs> you know, <laughs> he, he doesn't want to be near it regardless. Um <laughs> You know, maybe uh, that would be a great episode to do at some point. We talk about these different supervillains and just what would it be like to actually just have to live as these people, you know, live as Dr. Octopus. Say you're Dr. Octopus and you're not trying to do evil things. How difficult would it be just must to... be so hard to fit into a suit? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or, you know, Green Goblin, <laughs> you know, how hard would it be? Well, he could probably do be, the, you know, live the easiest of any of them. But Sandman certainly would, I think, have the hardest time. Possibly. So that could be an interesting that could that could be an episode for someday. Would you say that there's so much to tell about Flint Marco? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> but in any case, that's a story for another day. Sure, sure. I've enjoyed our exploration of the past, returning to haunt Peter, 
But now we're back to the future, and at the end of this episode... Still, if you want to share any of your thoughts on this theme of reoccurring temporal trials and tribulations in Spider-Man 3, or really any thoughts you want to share with us at all, you can take two buses and a cab to Twitter at SMTT Podcast. That's SMTT, as in So Much to Tell Podcast. And, if you're able, please consider joining us on Patreon to help us make this show. The sky's the limit for our podcast hosting fees, but I'm worried Sean's going <laughs> to blow his $7.84 on a cheeseburger instead. I mean, you can get like seven hamburgers off the dollar menu at McDonald's with that, so. <laughs> and have enough money for tax, too, so. <laughs> well, until next time. Godspeed, Spider fans. That was cool. All right. That was nice. Good. Like that little Back to the Future nod I snuck in there. <laughs>